welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. On today's episode, I spoke with Jay Wolford, Senior Vice President of Development at Transforming Age. He also served as Executive Director of Sustainable Housing for Ageless Generations, or SHAG, which this year affiliated with Transforming Age to create the eighth largest senior housing nonprofit in the U.S. In the last nine months, the two organizations have formed a new property management company with soon-to-be-revealed brand name, and they're plotting new ways to serve low- and moderate-income older adults in 2022 and beyond. We believe firmly in the idea about aging and community, and it's creating those safe environments for people to be able to continue to stay in their neighborhoods, in their towns, or in their communities, recognizing that a lot of the housing stock in America today is not appropriate for aging. But before we get to that interview, I'd like to highlight our SHN Architecture and Design Awards. This annual competition recognizes cutting-edge design and excellence in senior living across the U.S. and abroad. Visit SeniorHousingNews.com to view the nominees before the winners are announced in December. And now, here's my interview with Jay Wolford, Senior Vice President of Development at Transforming Age. Jay Wolford, thank you for joining me on Transform today. This is great. It's your second time on the podcast. Feels like an eternity ago, but this was before the pandemic when you were the executive director of Sustainable Housing for Ageless Generations, also called SHAG. That was before, of course, we learned that SHAG was merging with another senior living nonprofit, Transforming Age. And I think that you guys are creating, at least at the time of the merger, it was said to be the eighth largest senior housing nonprofit in the US. So that's very interesting. So I guess to start with, I wanted to check in on that. That was, we learned that announcement back in February. So if you can believe it, you know, we're going to be there next year soon. So how have things evolved since since we learned about the merger? Yeah, well, first off, Tim, thanks for inviting me to be back on the uh, podcast again. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's been a crazy time, you know, over the, uh, since the last time I've done it. As you had mentioned, we had, during the pandemic, I had worked with my board to actually you know, look at structuring an affiliation with Transforming Age, and we can go into that a little bit later. But in February, we officially announced that. And so it brought our portfolio of affordable housing into the Transforming Age sphere. And where we've been focusing in the last nine months has really been sort of the integration of our portfolio and our organization that was also involved in sort of the community outreach and the the networking that we have been doing with another affiliate of Transforming Age called Dash. And we've brought those portfolios now together. So we are serving closer to 7,000 residents, both seniors and family in low and moderate income settings. And during that time, we have done a number of things. We have We've actually formed a property management company, and we will be uh, very shortly announcing a uh, new branding for this entity so that we're bringing sort of all of the different components of the organizations under one umbrella now. So we're pretty excited about that. That is exciting. And so I guess you're probably not going to call it Dash Shag or something like well, that. No. <laughs> we did actually a little pre-run the other day, and, and they uh, joked about these are the names that we didn't go with. And one of them was Shagazon or <laughs> Hagen Dash or, or uh, using the uh, KFC bucket as, as our, you know, for our, our Community CLF, which is our Community Life Foundation. But we're excited about finally bringing us together under one brand. And the best part about it is it's not going to be an acronym. 
<laughs> there you go. Yeah. And not one people uh, think is an Austin Powers joke. Exactly right. I do not have <laughs> to explain that story anymore. Yes, that is good. Now, that, now I will tell you, though, that the, the Shag brand in the Pacific Northwest will continue. We have a lot of brand equity with that, and it is a portfolio that has been developed with a, a development partner, equity partner. And so that will continue. But we will be providing, uh, we'll be using our, our sub-brand as the entity that is providing support and services in those communities. But then we're also, we also will be rebranding some communities. So we'll be using it in a variety of different ways. Got it. So I think I remember reading when my colleague Tim Mullaney covered the announcement of Transforming Age and Shag joining forces. I think I remember you saying that you had to convince Shag's board at the time that affiliation was a wise thing to do. So... What, what was your argument to them? What did you say? How did you convince them? Well, it's really it's really more about thinking about the future. You know, we have been very successful in in the Pacific Northwest, primarily. You know, in the Washington State, west of the Cascade Mountains area, our desire was to grow beyond our current market area. But more importantly, we have always modeled ourselves as what we refer to as a network nonprofit. You know, the idea that you know, combining with other agencies and organizations is stronger and provides much more capacity and capability than, you know, than we can grow on our own or should grow on our own. And so it was really talking about where we had gotten ourselves and how we want to make that next leap, you know, into firmly planting our feet in both, you know, the senior affordable senior housing arena, as well as the senior support and services, and so that we could create a much more integrated program. And when with the uh, Transforming Age affiliation, what we were able to do with that is that not only did Transforming Age bring, you know, its capabilities and capacity in market rate and in life plan communities, but it also brought with that, as, as I mentioned, another organization that did do affordable and another one that does uh, home-based community home-based services and so with you know it sort of so it really expanded you know our capabilities and our reach it allowed us to focus on the things that we do really well and then leverage the things that other you know parts of the affiliation do really well now correct me if i'm wrong but i i also think i remember hearing that you you all will will target them the middle market you know specifically the the, the group that that doesn't that makes too much to afford to makes too much for affordable senior housing, but makes too little for you know sort of the traditional private pay world. So I want to go into you know if, how you'll do that. But first, I guess I, I because we often hear these terms affordable middle market, and they can be you know sometimes I think people use them interchangeably. So I want to define actually. So what do you see as the middle market? How do you, how do you see that standing apart from the affordable world? Sure, and we have historically really focused on what we call the the moderate income market. And in many places, that is the middle market in our area with, you know, the median income being, you know, close to $120,000 a year now. I mean, in order to even qualify for affordable under a LIHTC program, I mean, it's incomes up to $50,000 a year now. And so we have always sort of focused that, you know, have our focus been on what we, again, moderate income. And we use the term today, attainable more than affordable because, you know, everybody's going to be different. And the other thing that we're, we're looking at is not only, a, you know, once you move into a community, how you can continue to be able to sustain yourself to live there as, you know, costs are rising. Uh, so our focus is really 
you know, in, if you put it in the terms of median income, our focus is is between 50% of the area median income, which would qualify people under a tax credit program. But we're looking at, you know, serving folks up to 100 to 120% of median income also. And now that, you know, but that continues to put us within a financing structure, not necessarily using low-income housing tax credits the way we have in the past, but it does put us into financing structures where we can, we, there are partners out there that are specifically focused on, you know, serving that mid and moderate market. And especially, you know, in, in areas where we are, I mean, high, high cost, high barrier to entry, you know, the ability to actually provide moderate income is just, is becoming harder and harder to do. It seems to me like for any model that that tries to keep, you know, a, a, to use a word that you use, att- attainability of housing in mind, it seems like the hardest part of that equation is that with older adults, you know, people get older, they need care. And, and, and care is, of course, as we know, the, the costliest part of this equation often. It's why senior living can cost so much sometimes. I know that you and I have talked in the past about how you believe that housing can be a platform for you know, bringing in care services, especially through partnerships. But I wanted to check in on that now that you've gone, now that you're going through this, this affiliation, this merger. How do you feel about offering care and, and how, how do you think about making sure that people are cared for, but at the same time can also pay for the place where they live? Right. Well, that again goes back to the, you know, the whole idea of the, of the networks that we create. I mean, we've started creating those, uh, those networks out of the, with the principle that, Rents are going to rise. Cost of housing continues to rise. We've got folks that are spending, you know, the average right now for seniors is spending roughly 47% of their income on housing. Now, I mean, we still use the rubric of, of uh, you know, you're supposed to spend 30%. So by default, seniors are rent burdened. And we've got folks that are, that are spending upwards to 80% of their income just on housing. And so to borrow the, you know, the term from the London underground, it was, you know, how do we mine that gap? What are the things that we can do to ensure that people are still able to get access to nutrition, to wellness, to transportation, you know, and to just lifestyle. And so what we built was an intentional organization that was focused exclusively on creating those networks to be able to provide those in the community. So it was bringing community support, you know, from the outside in. And in doing that, we've been able to, we've been able to look at it from both a regional standpoint and then a near neighborhood standpoint. And we're also able to look at it from the standpoint of the individual communities as to what their needs are. Because each, you know, we have 39 communities now and each one is, you know, has different needs. But we've created this cadre of resources that we can pull from. So it, it could be we've got, you know, we've gotten involved with telehealth. We've got nursing programs are supporting us. We've got social work programs from, you know, universities are supporting us. We're able to, you know, bring in nutritional support. We've got wellness programs. So we've created all these these programs that we can then deploy to different communities and to be able to support residents, both on a community need and then on an individual need also. Because as an adjunct to that, we have a whole resident service coordination group that, you know, really knows how to how to deploy and access all of those resources that we've been creating in order to deal on an individual basis with people. Yeah. Something else that seems to make 
affordability, you know, moderate income, attainable housing, tough is staffing. You know, just given the, the, the staffing crisis, folks are having to use agency labor, you know, over time. It's tough to find enough people sometimes to staff your community. And so that, I understand, has led to elevated expenses for a lot of operators right now. So that seems like it runs aground with, you know, trying to target the moderate income simply because it's it costs more to run one of these communities now. So how do you think about staffing and, and you know, how do you solve for that, I guess? Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, one of the things is, I mean, by default, I would say, you know, we're, we are independent light. And so our staffing models are not as high as you might find in full service, independent or assisted living. And the other is that we have historically drawn from our own population. So we are, you know, and, and that's intentional too. I mean, we've got, you know, active seniors that are still looking to be able to, you know, be gainfully employed or utilize their, you know, the their experiences. And so we've got, we've been able to have uh, community managers, maintenance folks, housekeeping folks, transportation folks, you know, pulling directly from our communities. And by doing that, we're also able to do job sharing too. So it really, it's been able to, you know, kind of help maintain the cost of labor, I guess, as we get into, you know, and the other thing that we're doing, I guess, is through our relationships with colleges and universities. You know, we've done a lot of work with volunteer programs like AmeriCares. We've worked with community colleges in terms of promoting classes around resident service coordination, CNA, things like that. We're now involved in the universities, in the nursing programs and social work programs and medical programs with the, with the, the intent of not only just bringing those resources to our communities, but also, you know, providing access and introduction to students about working in the, in the senior housing field. And I think the more that we can do that and the more that we can promote that, you know, the the higher the opportunity to be able to attract new people into the profession also. Yeah. Now, obviously, I know that you all are, you come from the nonprofit world. And so I, I know that margin is not probably the, the you know top of mind for you at all times. That said, I also, I, I'm sure you're very familiar with the phrase, no mission without margin. I think we've talked specifically about this in the past. So I'm talking with you one day after our build conference in Chicago, and there was a lot of talk about margins there. So I want to ask you, for one of these communities that you're looking to be more attainable for folks, what is a realistic margin for one of those communities? And I guess, yeah, how does that all work in your mind? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, margin is important. I mean, you know, we need that to be able to attract investment into the communities. We need it to be able to continue to reinvest in our communities and we need it, you know, to continue to obviously operate. So I think, you know, I, I saw, you you know, the numbers between 20 and, and 40%. And I would say that generally speaking, we've been operating, you know, easily within those margins. You know, historically, you know, we've been fortunate. Our occupancy, you know, tends to stay fairly high. We have a need-based population, but oftentimes it's economic need. You know, so as long as we're able to continue to keep our rents, you know, in an appropriate spectrum, then we generally are are keeping our communities, you know, you know, well over ninety percent occupied. That's interesting. You know, I guess there's a notion that middle market communities carry you know, lower margins than these for-profit communities. So it's interesting that you're you're kind of in, in the same place that a lot of these other communities are. Yeah, and I think a lot of it has to do, again, the way that we've organized ourselves to, be, to bring in resources to help support what we're doing versus having to, provi- you know, carry the overhead to do that. Because a lot of these things, you know, in the mid-market, they're just, you know, they're, 
added amenities that a lot of residents just can't afford. Yeah. I actually meant to ask you about amenities a little bit ago. When you come into one of these communities or, or when you're developing one of these communities, what amenities do you include and how do you strike that balance between we want to offer an attractive community that people, you know, with things people want to use with, we don't also don't, we want to cut down the bells and whistles and we want to make sure we're very efficient and lean. Right. Well, we, I mean, all of our communities, you know, I think are amenitized the way that you would, you know, find, you know, kind of a current um, multifamily community in many ways. I mean, we all, we have uh, community rooms that, you know, we don't have commercial kitchens, you know, but we do have community rooms with, with kitchens in order to be able to do events in, in those spaces. We have breakout spaces, you know, for uh, people. We we have arts and crafts rooms. We'll have exercise rooms. We've started to separate, you know, our, you know, exercise using equipment from floor exercise areas. We have uh, multimedia uh, theaters in our communities on our urban properties. They all have rooftop, you know, gardens and amenities up there. You know, they're fully amenitized in terms of the, the biggest issue is obviously, you know, how do you support that? I mean, we don't, you know, as part of our operating model, for example, we don't have, you know, activity directors. So we're not staffing to do those things, but it's a matter of how we use, you know, our folks as resources in order to help residents organize the type of activities that that they want to have. The other is that we're starting to, or have been, you know, developing ways that we can co-locate with other organizations so that we're able to bring also, you know, other community amenities in to our community so the residents have opportunities to engage in intergenerational activities that may be sponsored by organizations like, you know, uh, community centers, senior centers, the YMCA, community clinics, public libraries. And we've also, in one of the communities, we now have a food court, for example, where uh, immigrant women are using that as a way to train to be able to build a business model to go out and open up their own restaurants. So we're starting to, you know, again, look at ways that we can bring resources from outside of the senior community in, in order to expand the types of amenities and activities that we can offer. Do you get the sense that as more of these kinds of communities are developed and operated, do you get the sense that you know, capital providers, lenders, investors, do you get the sense they're they're taking more interest in this or they understand it more? You know, I guess one of the I used to hear sometimes that that people thought that maybe there was there needed to be more education on what this product was and why it made a lot of sense. But do you sense that that's changing now, you know, especially with this pandemic and making the needs so much greater? I think it is. I mean, I think there's still, I mean, we, we're, we're still slicing and dicing a little bit. I mean, we still have, on the one end, we have, you know, the sort of affordable housing side that is still relying on federal subsidy. On the other end, we're looking at, you know, how do you lower the cost of traditional independent living in order to make it more affordable for people? And, and now we're starting to, you know, it's that reemergence of, you know, active adult and what it, what is how is that different from the active adult that was being developed you know back in the 90s and early 2000s you know is, and so it re, i mean it's sort of this merging of all of these different types of product types in order to figure out how to serve you know again this large segment of the population that would fit into sort of the middle or you know middle market I know that you all focus quite a bit on technology. I think that you did that at at Shag, and I know Transforming Age also was a pretty tech-forward organization. 
So I guess I, I just wanted to check in on that. Tell us how you're working with technology these days, how you're implementing it in your operations, and you know how you're also budgeting for it. That's something right. else that I think is tricky. Well, I would tell you that that's still an emerging uh, area. I mean, you know, a lot, <laughs> the pandemic really brought shined a you know a harsh light on the need to find ways to make sure that we were able to you know provide access for people you know outside of their own building as as they became more isolated and so from you know from at least from our standpoint it's more of how are we you know beginning to look at you know the communication vehicles i mean we've gotten some we've actually gotten some grants to look at you know bringing tech more technology into our communities and we've started to develop programs that were able to, you know, be virtual. I mean, we had gotten a half a million dollar grant to do uh, wellness and balance in one of our communities with the idea that we would roll it out to others in the pandemic hit. And we had to completely change the way we thought about that and really create a virtual platform to be able to do that. So it's really, you know, we're still at that, the early phases of implementing those things and finding ways, frankly, to be able to get to get broader access to it. I want to talk with you a little bit about the future and just sort of what we can expect to see next out of out of your your organization. So I think I remember reading that you had a goal of basically scaling up outside of the Pacific Northwest. I think you had said that earlier today. And I remember, I think, actually, you'd mentioned this today too, potentially starting in the Midwest. So earlier this year, those were kind of rough plans. You know, any, any updates on that now? Or I guess, you know, where, where are you at in terms of how you want to scale from here on out? Yeah, we're, I mean, that's still, those plans are still getting, you know, formulated and formalized. I would tell you that, you know, we use part of the pandemic to go into some planning in particular to begin into, you know, to look at constructability issues program so that we can begin to build more of a prototype as we move out into new markets. You know, one of the things that I've talked about before is consistency in the mid market is just so critical. You can't, you know, reinvent the wheel in every market that you go into or every piece of property you're looking at. So it's really, we've really been focusing on, you know, what are our basic building blocks to be able to take the model and make sure that we can you know, construct it affordably. And then the other is looking at markets where, where we can build those type of relationships that have been so critical to the success of our model. You know, we're not we're not necessarily looking in just like okay, we're going to go to you know this market or this market because it's a you know a high barrier to entry or you know there's access to capital in that in that market. It's really what are the things that we how can we build the relationships in the community in order to be able to really utilize the you know the prototypes that we're creating. Yeah, and I don't want to put you on the spot with this, but I was thinking while you were talking, I remember Transforming Age in particular in recent years had really grown through affiliations. When you talk about scaling, do you see the organization growing primarily through more affiliations? Do you see development? Do you see acquisitions? Do you see a kind of a mix of all of that? I would say there's, there, and I mean, the opportunities is a mix of all of that. I mean, I'm particularly focused right now on creating a new pipeline, you know, so that instead of, thinking about how we would acquire properties and then try to modify them to meet what our operating models are, the way that we're trying to approach our communities. Ideally, it's really looking at what is purpose-built, you know, to meet what our needs are and then be able to expand that. Because the, the, the fact of the matter is, I mean, we can't build our way out of the middle market demand, but we need to. I mean, we need 
to provide more housing. It's as simple as that. I mean, acquiring properties, you know, is repurposing maybe, or it's, you know, you know, bringing them to, you know, our model or our standards. But the need is so significant that I think, you know, we just need to find ways to continue to be able to expand and grow it. And, you know, because, and I think I've talked about this before. I mean, we, you know, we believe firmly in the idea about aging in community and it's creating those safe environments for people to be able to continue to stay in, you know, their neighborhoods or, you know, in their towns or in their communities, recognizing that, you know, a lot of the housing stock in America today is not appropriate for aging and in itself, you know, can can create isolation. So it's how do we create attractive communities that people don't want to delay, you know, coming in and recognizing that they're still, you know, a vital and integrated part of, you know, their neighborhood or the communities that they're living in. So we are talking here in, this is before the Thanksgiving holiday, November 19. So we're at the cusp of a new year. 2022 is, is really looming over the horizon. It feels too soon, in my opinion, but here it is. So I wanted to ask you before we wrap up today, I guess, you know, we're, we're in an interesting time, this industry is. It, sometimes it can feel like there is a, you know, I think there, the numbers show there was a recovery underway. And yet at the same time, we're still in the middle of a pandemic and that is not changing. So uh, at least not anytime soon. So I guess as you look ahead to 2022, you know, I guess first, what's ahead for transforming age? And also, you know, I guess also, what do you think the industry is, should expect in 2022? Obviously, knowing that no one has a crystal ball. Yeah, and that's a great question. I mean, I, I mean, from our standpoint, we've got projects in the pipeline that are going to be moving forward in 2022. We're in the process of creating some exciting connections, relationships with other organizations along the lines of, again, the idea of co-locating. We've got a great opportunity to redevelop a significant parcel in a high barrier area that normally, you know, that you would there would be no entry for mid-market. But because we control the property, we've got a, you know, a, a great opportunity to do something there that we see is kind of will become sort of our flagship as we move forward. We're focusing more on intergenerational. I mean, for a long time, I've been trying to break down the barrier or the idea that, you know, senior housing is an island or isolated unto itself. And how is it, you know, really connected, again, in its broader community? And so we are looking at ways that we can be thinking about not only senior, but also intergenerational family and workforce. Recognizing again to, you know, some of the points earlier is that we've got, you know, we've got employees that, you know, because of where communities are located, they have to travel, you know, hours to get to the job because of the affordability of housing. And so we think it's important that we begin to address those type of situations too. So I think, you know, as I look forward to 2022, it's still, you know, for me, it's still dealing with some of the broader systemic issues as to how we, you know, really firmly, you know, are able to, you know, plant these ideas around meeting the mid-market to be able to do it in the context of remaining, you know, in their communities. Great. Well, I will be watching closely. <laughs> I'm, I'm always very interested in what you guys do. So, Jay Wolford, thank you for coming on Transform. This was a fascinating discussion. Tim, thanks so much and have a great Thanksgiving. You too. That does it for this episode of Transform. I would again like to mention our SHN Architecture and Design Awards. Visit SeniorHousingNews.com to view the nominees before the winners are announced in December. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.